now, back to Stand Up with Pete Dominic on Indy, Sirius XM 104. Well, we're in a holding pattern over Syria, really. You think about it. I mean, uh, you know, John Kerry, President Obama tried to keep the military option on the table, as well as uh, the, the leaders of France and, and other countries that are considering potential military action intervening in Syria's civil war. But as you know, there's uh, a lot of new developments there and agreements with accounting for those chemical weapons. And so uh, so maybe there will not be an attack. Nonetheless, very, very relevant piece written in the Daily Beast uh, by David Stockman, who joins us now. Uh, probably one of the best uh, articles I read arguing against war, not only in Syria, but um, many of the, 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 the past wars and many of the potential future wars. He served as the director of the Office of Management and Budget in the Reagan administration. He was the youngest cabinet member of the 20th century. He represented Michigan in the House of Representatives. He was a congressman from 1976 to 81. And he's got a recent book, which is a bestseller. He joined to talk us talk to us about uh, called The Great Deformation, The Corruption of Capitalism in America. And this piece in the Daily Beast, uh, however, is called The End of U.S. Imperium, Finally, and I thought it was fascinating. I'm so excited to have David Stockman on to talk about it. Mr. Stockman, thanks so much for joining us. Very happy to be with you, uh, Pete. I'm disappointed that uh, uh, that one of the best pieces I read is written by uh, an economics guy, a money guy, a finance guy, you, the, uh, the head of the uh, Office of Management and Budget. Uh, why do you think that – why why did you write uh, such a provocative and, and important piece uh, arguing against, against war? Uh, why did you think you could and should write that piece? Well, I think this involves a lot more than should we bomb or not bomb Syria in the circumstances that existed a couple weeks ago. I see this circumstance that we're in as merely part of a continuum that has been going on for decades now, all the way back to the 1960s when I was a student on the barricades protesting against the war in Vietnam. And I think we have had a misguided, misbegotten foreign policy for the most part of a half century now, with one intervention after another, uh, Vietnam being a total disaster. But frankly, we didn't accomplish anything in all the others. When we went into Lebanon in the 1980s, when I was in the White House, that was a catastrophe. We never should have been in there. That was a civil war. In the 1990s, we didn't accomplish anything in the first Gulf War. We only paved the way for uh, the second one and far uh, greater uh, you know, cost, loss of life, and uh, disruption in the Middle East. Uh, obviously, the Iraq War was a, a total mistake. Uh, uh, in Afghanistan, we're bogged down in a place where we shouldn't be. And those are only the big ones. We can talk about all the small interventions that we've made, meddling in places where we have no national interest, where our safety and security is not involved. I, believe, I call this the inevitable consequence of the warfare state, this massive machinery of defense, intelligence, spying, uh, that is built up uh, over the decades that is just looking for another reason uh, for involvement. And that was the issue that I saw on the table at play uh, when the White House uh, was considering uh, bombing Syria for the chemical attack. Now, obviously, we don't even know at this point the exact cause of that. Uh, the White House uh, has not 
put out information to document unequivocally that it was ordered by the regime. And for us to be stumbling into another war based on a four-page summary that was made public that says essentially nothing except that we assess this or we assess that, I thought was, uh, uh, you know, on the verge of a real calamity. For, fortunately, uh, because uh, the Congress was unwilling to go along, because the public overwhelmingly said no, because the British Parliament drew the line, uh, the war machine has been stopped in its tracks, and I consider this uh, a major turning point, uh, and we'll just have to see where it goes from here. But at least, as we said when I was in the barricades in the 1960s, uh, let's give peace a chance, and maybe uh, peace is finally getting a chance uh, as these uh, negotiations uh, begin to unfold. We're talking to David Stockman. He was the director of the Office of Management and Budget in the Reagan administration. He was a congressman uh, from Michigan. Uh, what about uh, the United States intervention in Korea, in Vietnam and other places more covertly to prevent the spread of communism? You don't think that was something we needed to do at the time? No. Uh, communism was going to collapse on its own weight. Socialism doesn't work. A state-run, centralized bureaucratically uh, controlled economy sooner or later will fail. That's what the lesson of the Soviet Union was. We didn't defeat the Soviet Union. Uh, they went bankrupt. They collapsed under their own uh, bureaucratic uh, weight. So uh, if we go back to the 1960s, what was involved in Vietnam? <laughs> that was a calamity. Uh, at that very time in the 1960s, China was uh, falling apart because uh, Chairman Mao had decided that everybody was going to become a backyard industrialist, and he had ruined the agricultural economy. The Great Leap Forward was a total uh, failure. There was, you know, the greatest starvation in history was occurring that very moment in the mid-60s. You know, it's now documented 30 or 40 million Chinese starved because of the misbegotten policies of Chairman Mao and the regime. And so we were, uh, we, we sent uh, billions of dollars, uh, 59,000 American lives, hundreds of thousands maimed, and wounded for life, uh, millions of uh, Vietnamese killed, uh, in order to what? Stop uh, Chairman Mao from annexing Vietnam? I mean, when you look back on it in the clear light of history, you ask, what were they thinking? And uh, I'm, I'm saying that after decade after decade of this, when we see the result of these misbegotten interventions where we had no uh, security uh, 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 threat uh, involved to, to directly to the United States. We should be learning our lesson and uh, changing our ways. But as long as we have a 650 billion war machine, as long as we have the Beltway in Washington crawling with people who make a living off of intervening and meddling and trying to be the policemen of the world, uh, these policies are unlikely to change. We got fortunate, we got lucky in Syria uh, as a result of a series of unlikely events, uh, Kerry's statement and then the quick response of the Russians. But the machine machinery there is what the real threat to security is. It needs to be dramatically uh, cut back and dismantled.
What about the issue of uh, of, of energy resources and, and our need for them? We are 5% of the world's population, but we use 25% of the world's uh, energy here in America. We like our energy, as you know, David Stockman. Yes, yes uh, and so. And so, uh, in, and the uh, thing you... is, though, uh, we we need to let recognize this is a world price for oil. Supply and demand comes from all over the globe. Uh, the last, but when you when you, I mean, don't you when, when there's uh, when there's uh, unsettling uh, circumstances, when there is uh, when there are issues in in these oil providing nations, uh, we have to have uh, deals with the devil, like Saudi Arabia, and when and, and when Iraq in. Uh, you know, invaded Kuwait. We had to do that because no, uh, think, because of I, oil. I, I dispute that <laughs> totally. You know, uh, Kuwait wasn't a country. It was uh, an emirate of a few uh, hundred princes who live uh, unbelievably uh, uh, opulent lifestyles for no reason. That little piece of territory was drawn on a map in 1919 by the British Foreign Office. Uh, we had no dog in that hunt. Uh, if, uh, you know, at the time Saddam said this is part of Iraq, uh, so be it. As far as I'm concerned, nothing was accomplished. Uh, whoever controls these large reserves sooner or later will produce them because they need the revenue to take care of their own internal economic needs and populations. So the idea that somehow by intervening all over the Persian Gulf, protecting corrupt uh, dictatorial authoritarian regimes like Saudi Arabia, uh, that somehow this is necessary uh, in order to, you know, uh, manage the price of oil or protect uh, the uh, short-run economy, I think is totally wrong. So you argue against the, uh, the the spread of communism, and I think you make a great case happen. there. I mean, it didn't happen. I know. Communism I know. Fell apart. <laughs> and then, and then, and then you make the points about Kuwait and, and oil and interventions there. Uh, right. Interesting points by David Stockman. What about, however, humanitarian interventions? What about Kosovo? That that seems to be uh, you know uh, universally celebrated by both liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans agreed with that intervention during the Clinton administration. But uh, but you you write something a little bit differently uh, in your piece. Yeah, I mean that was none of our business either. It wasn't sanctioned by the UN. Uh, it was something that. Uh, uh, Clinton, for uh, reasons that are existent today, uh, the uh, the so-called idea of responsibility to protect, um, plunged into a civil war, and we simply swapped one set of thugs for another. Uh, the uh, uh, KLA, so-called, the Kosovo Liberation Army, was essentially uh, ethnic Albanians who were uh, being... Um, you know, uh, threatened by the Serbian army, uh, we intervened, and uh, the Serbian army, which was a bunch of thugs and terrorists, was driven out, and the KSA, the uh, KLA took over, and uh, they were as brutal in taking property and lives and revenge and everything else uh, as the uh, Serbians had been before them. This had been going on for centuries in the Balkans. It's the tragedy of the Balkans. But uh, nothing uh, was accomplished by military intervention that had lasting benefit or that was any of our business in the first place. So what about using military intervention for humanitarian... Uh... I'm totally opposed to it. I mean, uh, it's almost a contradiction in terms. Um, you're going to bomb people so that other people aren't killed. You know, 
military intervention isn't that surgical, isn't that precise. Once you go down that path, then there's blowback, then there's retaliation, then you have to respond to that. Then there's spillover into the next country, uh, as clearly as uh, evident today in Syria, which is uh, simply a proxy war, if you get into it, involving the whole complex of the Iranian Shia network uh, against the uh, Saudi uh, Sudi, uh, Sunni uh, Turkey uh, alliance. Uh, so, you know, the, the idea that somehow there's uh, you can use military force surgically to um, uh, further humanitarian ends, I think, is first not demonstrated whatsoever, and second uh, is just another excuse for this great machinery of the war machine in Washington to be activated. Here you have liberal activists uh, activating the war machine. But I say that's ideology. That's not national interest. That's not the security of the American people. And when you look at it, Paul Wolfowitz, who was the neocon advisor to Bush, said let's have regime change in Iraq for humanitarian purposes. Uh, that was no different than Samantha Power, the current U.N. Uh, Ambassador saying, "Let's go into Syria uh, for uh, regime for to protect um, uh, from the chemical attacks." Uh, neither of those involved our national interest. Neither of those occasions, and even though uh, Samantha Power and Paul Wolfowitz might be miles apart on the ideological spectrum, they both were empowered to activate the war machinery of the United States against innocent people based on ideology, not national interest. We're talking to uh, the uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, former director of Office of Management and Budget, and, and you're talking about the in industrial military complex. You're talking about the machine. You're talking about the, the, the bureaucrats uh, and, and the Beltway uh, masters who, who pull all the strings here and make all the decisions. In your article, you actually name uh, some of them, as you just did there. Uh, but let me ask you, you, you know, you, you understand economics, uh, and though while I don't always agree with everything you say, I certainly can't argue with you. I'm no expert. Nonetheless, uh, we have, a, as you mentioned, a, a budget for our, our, our Pentagon. Our defense budget is over $600 billion. You think we would be better served with something about $300 billion. But what about the economy? What about those jobs? What about all of those jobs from from the top to the bottom of the folks who work at uh, at places like Raytheon and Boeing and, and all these companies that make missiles and bombs and bullets? That's a lot of jobs. So if we cut that budget... Uh, that creates those jobs, that taxpayer money that creates those jobs, what would that do to the economy? That's a question, while I agree with you on our foreign policy entirely, I don't know about that economic question, and that that is something that concerns me. Well, I think it's a good question, but if you look at the fundamental logic, uh, you, you we cannot say that the way to get full employment, the way to get prosperity is to build the most massive, lethal, destructive war machine imaginable. Uh, obviously, military spending at the end of the day destroys wealth. It doesn't provide anything of lasting value to the civilian economy. You can't consume it, and it doesn't produce capital goods that are going to generate a return flow of income down the road. It is all a deadweight cost, a deadweight loss. It's a uh, reduction in the standard of living and the wealth of the American people. Now, in the short run, sure, when you use the buying power of government 
to procure weapons or build uh, ships and planes, it creates jobs in the short run that would otherwise um, be uh, devoted to production of civilian capital and consumer goods. And you do have a transition, and we have to start that transition. We should have started that transition in 1991 when the Cold War ended. Here we are a quarter of a century later, and we still have a bigger war machine uh, now in real terms, you know, inflation-adjusted dollars, than we had in 1991 when at least there was some remnant of the Soviet Union left. Now, what I say in my article is we need to take a lesson from history. In 1919, when the World War I was over, we dismantled, demobilized the military establishment. We didn't keep a giant military establishment during peacetime on the job, on the grounds that it was good for jobs. In 1945, we did the same thing. We had the greatest war machine known in history during World War II. We had to, to uh, defeat the totalitarian powers. But by 1947, this massive machine, 50% of GDP, had been totally uh, dismantled, demobilized, and down to a residual peacetime level. That's what should have happened in 1991. We didn't do that, and instead we left the war machine in place so that Clinton could uh, dicker around in, uh, Bal in the Balkans or George Bush could start wars uh, in Iraq and elsewhere that we didn't need or that Obama could now uh, threaten to bomb a country that's never harmed us in the slightest. So in the larger uh, context of history, that's uh, the issue before us. We can't let the war machine dictate policy. We have to look at uh, our national interests. Besides that, you know, we're going broke in this country. We have $17 trillion in national debt. And if we're going to begin to get this deficit under control, the first place to start is with a massive reduction in defense and security spending. Uh, what about the, the threat that uh, a conventional uh, military poses? Because I think that's probably the best point that you make. You make many great points in this really, really phenomenal article, David Stockman, but about the threat that a China or a Russia poses America. But, Being ready know, for that. I think that's a great question, and that's the point, uh, you know, that's the elephant in the room that's ignored. We don't have an industrial state enemy left in the world. Russia has no serious military capability. Their economy is not nearly as strong as it appears, uh, because that's simply a short run of prosperity they're enjoying from oil prices that may or may not stay where they are. Uh, China is a massive export machine that couldn't last for six months without sending four or five hundred billion of exports uh, to the United States to fill our Walmarts uh, and other retail distribution. So the idea that we need a vast defense establishment uh, to protect ourselves against China when they would collapse uh, in six months if they lost their markets here, or against Russia that is a kleptocracy more interested in stealing from each other and uh, making Mr. Putin even richer than he is, uh, is just nonsense. And, th and if you don't have an industrial state enemy that can deliver serious military harm to the homeland in America, then why do we have 6,000, 8,000 tanks? Why do we have you know, tens of thousands of attack helicopters and uh, aircraft uh, of one type or another, or this huge uh, Navy with 11 uh, carrier battle groups. None of this what, really makes sense. 
What about the idea that people make this argument about projecting power, the idea that we, we are the, uh, the most powerful nation militarily in the world, and we have to stay that way so everybody knows that we have this and we can use it. Uh, and most, uh, most recently, people not only in Syria and the Syria argument uh, make that argument. And we, how many times have we heard Iran is just six months away from a nuclear weapon, just six months away? And so, I know, but they've uh, said that since 1983. So you uh, ought to begin to recognize that. That is propaganda from the warfare state. That is propaganda from the machinery in Washington that thrives on having an enemy. If you look at the objective facts, Iran has been demonized beyond recognition. I'm not saying that this is some kind of enlightened democracy. It isn't. But it is a unique form of government, uh, a theocracy that is here to stay. It's lasted for 30 years. Whether we like it or not, the people seem to support the regime. Time and again, they've elected moderates like Mr. Rouhani uh, just recently who do want to find some way to normalize uh, relationships with the West and the United States in particular, but instead of pursuing diplomacy and negotiations and a pragmatic settlement, uh, we continue to demonize them and, uh, you know, call them a rogue nation, the axis of evil. uh, uh, And as a result of all of that, the American people have been totally misled by the big lie about Iran. We're talking to, uh, believe it or not, a Republican. Uh, you believe that your party has been, uh, I don't want to put uh, ideas in your mouth, but the Republican Party is, is clearly, uh, and most people agree, the, the party uh, of, of war, the, the neocons, the warmongers, and certainly there's plenty in the Democratic Party uh, that are not uh, necessarily opposed to it either. Uh, what do you think of the Republican Party uh, today? You a Republican working for Reagan. Uh, clearly you've always been kind of an anti-war guy, David Stockman, but what do you think of today's Republican Party and the neocons that are still uh, hold uh, a lot of power. Well, uh, that's that's a problem, but I think you're beginning to see that there is a younger um, uh, element of the Republican Party, let's say exemplified by Rand Paul, uh, that are rejecting the neocon ideology, which is you know, the opposite of what conservative small government Republicans have stood for in the past. We had a great leader in the 1940s and 50s, Senator Robert Taft from Ohio, Mr. Republican, as he was called then. His foreign policy was one of strict non-intervention, of, uh, you know, defending the national security of the United States in legitimate terms with the least uh, military uh, uh, force uh, uh, possible. Eisenhower ran against him in 1952 and prevailed in the primaries, but ultimately adopted the same strategy. Eisenhower uh, wound down the war quickly in Korea, refused to intervene in Vietnam and many other places, got us back on a non-intervention uh, uh, policy, and uh, unfortunately, everything that Eisenhower accomplished, including his warning on the military-industrial complex when he left office in 1961, was then lost with the aggressive you know, interventionist policies of uh, Kennedy and Johnson and, and Nixon and uh, all of the uh, uh, you know, uh, regimes since. So there is a split in the Republican Party, 
and uh, it's clear that the neocons have brought the party and the country to ruin, and that maybe at this moment in time, Syria is helping the party to re-examine what it stands for, and uh, maybe it provides an opportunity to get off this kick of militarism, intervention, and imperialism. Uh, we're talking to uh, uh, David Stockman. David, uh, I've had this guy calling the, the program almost every day throughout the serious stuff. Very smart guy, and uh, I want to I want to put him on the uh, on the air with you to make make uh, his point. See if you agree or disagree with Jason in D.C. Jason, try to be succinct. Go ahead. Really simple, David. Could you explain to everybody how the use of the petrodollar trade is allowing the United States to run these crazy budgets? And if the United States uh, does not have the world purchasing our energy how we risk the dollar going down and interest rates going up significantly. Well, I think that's a good point, uh, and that's why our monetary policy has been so misguided for decades now. We're driving interest rates artificially down. Uh, we're printing money, buying bonds at the Fed like there's no tomorrow. All of this has been designed to kind of stimulate a phony prosperity in the United States and make it possible for our economy uh, to function at a higher level than uh, it's really capable of. So uh, the the weak dollar um, is one of the reasons that keeps the oil price high. Uh, It really accomplishes nothing that's sustainable uh, in the long run, and it's just part of the whole complex of policy errors that we've been making for several decades. Well, let me um, let me ask you about the uh, while I've got you, of course. Thank you, Jason, uh, about the you know controversy about who's going to be the next chairman of the Fed. I know you've been very critical of the institution in general. Uh, what what do you think about? Uh, obviously, we're not getting rid of the the uh, the Federal Reserve. What do you think? Who do you think should be running it? Well, um, you know, if all of the candidates, uh, now that Summers is out, it's probably going to be Janet Yellen. Uh, she's been a Fed uh, uh, player for uh, decades now. They're all in the same group think that if we keep interest rates at zero, if we massively intervene in the financial markets and buy bonds at $80 billion a month, that somehow we're helping the economy. I think that's totally disproven. We're five years into this now. The Main Street economy is just barely struggling to recover. The entire benefit of all of this money printing and interest rate repression has been on Wall Street. We've had a a new huge boom in the price of risk assets and securities. Uh, The markets have soared but the real economy hasn't benefited. So they're going to do more of the same. Uh, There's no one in sight uh, that's likely to change uh, policy direction, go back to a Volcker-type policy, Uh, and uh, that's unfortunate, but that seems to be uh, the state of play at the moment. Uh, the president's going to be giving a speech today in the five-year anniversary of the uh, of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and so on. And uh, you know, I, I, the the cover of Time magazine is an article. It, it, you know, five years later, nothing's changed. It could happen again. Something like that. Yeah, uh, I agree I know with you're... that completely. Um, this is you know, someone said, "Don't waste a good crisis." This crisis has been entirely wasted. 
The six biggest banks in the United States today have $10 trillion of assets, nearly 50% of all uh, financial assets. That's far bigger than it was in 2008. We should have been splitting up uh, the banks. They're too big. If they're too big to fail, they're too big to exist. We should have been reimposing not only um, you know, uh, the, the uh, regulations that we had prior to 2000, but uh, actually strengthening them. Glass-Steagall uh, should have been reinstituted and uh, strengthened substantially. But none of this happened. Uh, we've just gone on our merry way, reinflating bubbles, printing money as if somehow that can restore prosperity, running massive uh, fiscal deficits that we're going to be paying forever. Uh, I think, um, you know, uh, we're just uh, waiting with our head in the sand uh, for another crisis uh, to occur, and it's uh, probably around the bend. Uh, well, to everything that we've talked about, David Stockman, I think that probably the underlying issue is uh, is that we have a problem with how we finance political campaigns and how much, how much uh, of an impact money makes – in Washington, D.C., the, 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 the lobby that spends more than any other on at least presidential elections, I believe, is the financial industry. Uh, obviously, you've got uh, the Israelis and the British lobbying foreign policy. You've got the energy brokers uh, uh, lobbying on energy issues. And, of course, you've got, as we talked about for most of our uh, conversation, you've got the industrial military complex uh, lobbying and spending money on a number of congressional campaigns. And they're smart enough to have uh you know their their factories spread out across 48 states or something so uh, all their you know jobs in every district and state uh to me the the big problem here is that we have so much money coming from these industries that collude and work together uh and put their money in a pool and hire lobbyists to influence legislation that benefits them but not the rest of us do you agree or disagree that we should change the way that uh we finance uh political campaigns in America well, I agree. Uh, we have to have sweeping change. In my book, The Great Deformation, uh, that's one of the uh, recommendations I made at the end. We, uh, this is so uh, corrupted. Uh, money, you know, money and PACs and the K Street lobbies and interest group uh, pressure uh, has so perverted and corrupted our democratic political system that we need radical surgery. So I've proposed, one, public financing of campaigns only, abolish private uh, finance, period, whether it's from unions or big corporations or billionaires or even uh, average people. Let's get private money out of the process, uh, public money only. That's first. Second, uh, and this is even more radical, I think we have to amend the Constitution to put on term limits and abolish incumbency. Uh, extend the terms to six years and, and don't let anybody run for re-election in the House or the Senate and give the president one six-year shot to try to accomplish something. Therefore, no politician in the Beltway would ever have to raise one dime, attend one fundraiser, um, you know, placate uh, one uh, special interest group or, or political action committee as part of his daily life. He would get elected once. He would try to do what he could uh, to make uh, the, address the problems of the country 
and then uh, go back to whatever way of life he came from. Well, that's the problem I see. That the, the, the problem that you don't, uh, are, don't seem to address there, though, is the problem that I see, which is the revolving door. Because when they go back, they often go to the industries uh, that they created legislation oh, well, to I, benefit. I didn't get to that. I'm glad you Aha, Chris Dodd, Tom Daschle, and I'm just looking at Democrats. Yeah, yeah, but I'm, I, you're right on. There was a study uh, not too long ago, you might remember, that showed that 180 former staffers of the Senate Finance Committee, and this was based on the last 10 years, are now registered tax lobbyists in Washington. 180 people that represented the tax writing committee of the U.S. Senate, uh, who were the key staffers. So that kind of is what you're talking about. How do you prevent that, though? I mean, I don't know how you can tell someone you can't go get it. Yeah, the third element uh, in my reform package, which, again, is utopian, but it shows you how far gone the system is, would be to proscribe anyone from uh, lobbying uh, who uh, ever was on the payroll, either as an elected member of Congress or on the staff. Uh, They would uh, be prevented uh, from ever uh, uh, lobbying or applying their trade uh, in the beltway. That's uh, extreme, I realize, but there, if you do it any other way, like two years or four years or six years, they find ways around it. They find ways, like Newt Gingrich, to say they weren't lobbying. They were just right. advising. I'm a historian. Yeah, so just, um, yeah, they were a historian for... Uh, Freddie Mac or whatever. (laughs) I'm just saying once you're on the payroll uh, and you leave because your term is up, uh, you can't uh, come back to Washington uh, to lobby or peddle influence. Go back to real life and try to make a living and add something productive uh, to our economic system. Well, we've got to wrap it up, but I really appreciate you joining us. Like I said, I think your article uh, written in Daily Beast, The End of U.S. Imperium, finally is one of the best that I read over all this serious stuff. I thought it documented so many of the issues. I tried to ask you the questions uh, uh, you know, that you addressed there. And, uh, and of course, thanks for talking about the rest of uh, the economy and the Fed and, uh, and campaign finance reform. I hadn't gotten to that part in your book, and I now will. I really appreciate you joining us, David Stockman, and your service to the country. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Glad to be with you with you all right uh that's david stockman read his piece uh in the daily beast and of course his book is the great deformation the corruption of capitalism in america stand up with pete dominic for more stand up with pete dominic go to siriusxm.com slash india